Good morning, everybody. My name is Isaac. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you, I get to be one of the pastors here at Collective Church. Happy Hanukkah for those who are celebrating. Who knows tonight is the last night of Hanukkah? Who knew that before I said it? Great. Four people. Awesome. We actually do have a few Jewish people who follow Jesus in our community, so you can wish them a happy Hanukkah. Or your neighbors or your friends or your coworkers who you know are Jewish, just like send them a little text or write them a card or do something, say happy Hanukkah. It makes a huge difference, trust me. Um, so I got my Hanukkah socks on right here, little menorahs. You can come up and see that a little closer later. I did that just for you guys. Um, but we've been in a series, uh, we started last week called The Songs of Christmas. There are four different songs or poetic expressions in the Gospel of Luke surrounding the narrative of Jesus' birth. And last week we looked at Mary's song, which is called the Magnificat, which is an explosion of praise that Mary uh, sings after she's told the news by Gabriel that she is going to be the mother of the Lord, of the Messiah. And this week, we get to look at the song of a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest, and he becomes the father of John the Baptist. So he's not called John the Baptist because he's a Baptist as opposed to a Presbyterian or whatever. He actually baptizes people. And he plays a very significant role in the story of Christmas, one that I think kind of gets overlooked sometimes. So I'm really excited. If you want to open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, we're going to read a portion of the story, including the song, um, and then we're going to back up and look at a little bit more of his life. But starting in verse 57, it's going to be on the screen behind me. And if you would, please stand if you are able to acknowledge that what we are reading right now is not uh, my words, it's not just anyone's words, it's the word of God. And so let's read this together. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard were laid heard them, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And here's the song. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Pray with me. Today, Heavenly Father, we look into your word to prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of your son at Christmas in the season of anticipation and waiting. Many of us have things that we are waiting for, that we are hoping for, and we don't know when they're going to happen, when they're going to come true. I pray that all of those things would be very present in our minds, that we would be able to examine them, give them to you, and that in doing so, you would catch us up in the bigger story of what you've been doing throughout all history that we get to be a part of today. As we look in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their son, John, I pray that we would see ourselves and I pray that we would see how you want to call us to be a part of it. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You guys can be seated. All right, who remembers, who's old enough to remember VH1 behind the music? Anyone? Yes, the best mid-90s to late-90s documentary on music television ever, right? Uh, it's the essence of that time period. You find out about who artists are. You go behind the music to see kind of what made them into becoming who they are. It's usually like hair metal bands, like 80s hair metal. They tend to focus on like poison or something like that. And they would explore the circumstances that went into making these famous songs that we all can't get out of our heads to help us appreciate them more. And that's through that documentary, we also learned what lip syncing was. You guys remember the Millie Vanilli episode? Anyone? Girl, you know it's... And it, anyway, so <laughs> the point of that was... The, the songs that we remember, that we, that we think of often, when we know the contexts behind the songs, what went into writing these songs, they make a bigger impact on our lives, and they mean a little bit more to us. It means a little bit more when you're singing Amazing Grace to know that John Newton, the author of that song, used to be a former slave owner who became an abolitionist and fought for the end of slavery. Right? It means a little bit more when you sing, It is well with my soul. You know that Horatio Spafford, when he wrote that song, had just lost his four daughters on a cruise ship across the Atlantic Ocean and yet could sing, It is well. These songs, when we understand what's behind them, actually start meaning more to us. And we've been thinking a little bit, uh, Ryan mentioned last week, about the genre of what some of these songs of Christmas would be. Last week, he shared how Mary's song, The Magnificat, is kind of like punk rock. It's like a little, like, the underdog gets the victory, and the man, they, like, stick it to the man a little bit. I was thinking about what would Zechariah's song be, the song that we just read. So Zechariah's song, to me, is like musical theater. Any musical theater nerds in here? Lily's in kids today. I was expecting her to go, woo! Um, 
Zechariah's song is not just like musical theater. Zechariah's song is like the reprise of the main theme of a musical that happens in the second act after the intermission, okay? Very specific. The reprise is, is the, how it like takes the themes of the main song of the musical, and then after the intermission, they sing it again, but things have developed. The plot has changed, and now those songs and those words have new meaning. After the intermission of a musical, often there is a major change that's taken place, whether in, in the setting, actual like sets sometimes change between acts, and sometimes actors have completely changed their roles to a different role. And if you walked in at this point in the story during a musical and you sat down after the intermission and you listened to this reprise song, you might say, hey, you know, that's pretty catchy. You might tap your foot along, but you actually have no idea what's going on, right? The references, the plot points, the things that have happened in Act 1, the inside jokes, all of the melodies that have been developed and picked up on will be completely lost on you, right? So Zechariah's song draws us back to the story that God has been telling for thousands of years. And Zechariah's song uses key themes and phrases that recapitulate and places his own life story into the context of this bigger story that God has been telling and dealing with the people of Israel, just like the reprise in a musical. And his song is actually an explosion of hope. It is filled with future-oriented certainty based on what God has done in the past, based on what he has promised to do, deliverance from our enemies, God coming through on his promises, forgiving our sins, bringing light in the darkness. But the significance of his song comes not only from the content of the words themselves, but from the behind-the-music perspective that we get by understanding the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth's life and what the people of Israel are going through, specifically Elizabeth's barren womb and Zechariah's deafness and muteness. The fact that Elizabeth wanted kids and couldn't have any and the fact that Zechariah, upon hearing news from an angel, actually becomes mute and can't speak anymore. And together, they symbolize a story that's been going on in their people, Israel, for hundreds of years. So first of all, we need to see that they were bereft of hope. Like I said, Zechariah and Elizabeth were barren. They could not conceive children. But they were the poster child, the poster couple, for faithful religious Israelites. Both of them were from families of priests. Zechariah himself was a priest. They did everything right. They were the ones who, like in our day, they went to church even when everybody else dipped. They were there. They were serving faithfully. They were giving faithfully. And according to their religious worldview, their lives should have been going exactly right. But God had not blessed them with children. And in their, in their context, in their culture back then, that was like the point of life. The point of your life was to bear kids. And if you didn't have kids, your they inherited shame. Read with me in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. And they were both, Zechariah and Elizabeth, 
righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now this story should sound a little bit familiar if you've read any of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, right? An old couple can't have any kids. And these, they are very religious people, like I said. So sometimes religious people can be tempted into thinking that because they're doing everything right, God somehow owes them something, right? When things don't go according to their plan, in spite of showing up, doing everything right, they can become bitter and blame the lack of the fulfillment of their hopes on God not delivering according to the timeline that they had set, right? God, I did everything. I've always showed up. I've always been faithful. I've always listened to you. I've always tried to do what's right, but you haven't come through for me. And this may well have been their perspective as Zechariah just kind of shows up day after day, fulfilling his priestly duty, and yet his life was barren, and his wife was barren. And so, in chapter 1, verse 13, God intervenes into the story and shows up. And an angel interrupts what would have been Zechariah's once-in-a-lifetime honor of offering incense on the altar in the temple. So he and his priestly buddies are sitting there and they cast lots, which is kind of like rolling dice, to see whose turn it was to go inside the temple and offer incense on the altar. And in there, he meets an angel. Verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. A little harsh, right? Zechariah, can you blame him for going like, are you sure this is really going to happen? But his response of doubt is met with what seems like this kind of ultra harsh response from the angel when we just read last week about how when the angel Gabriel visited Mary and said, hey, you're going to have a son even though you're a virgin. And she goes, what? I'm a virgin. I can't have a son. He doesn't say, shh, shut up. You can't talk anymore. He says, well, here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to make a baby inside of your... Like, he explains the whole thing. Zechariah, shh, be quiet. 
Why? What's the difference there? Well, I think there's a, a pretty big difference in terms of the characters that the angel's talking to. First, you have a young teenage girl who is scared and is seen as part of like the lowest part of society. And then you have a priest who has faithfully served God for years and years and years into his old age and should have known a little bit about the story of Israel that God had actually done this very thing time and time again throughout their history. And so the angel's kind of saying like, you have a little bit of, of stuff to learn about the God that you say that you serve. But more than that, more than it's not just this, this punitive punishment, these months of silence introduced into Zechariah's story serve as kind of a mini parable about what's been happening in the people of Israel for the past 300 years. And that is prophetic silence. Ever since the nation of Israel returned from exile in Babylon, 500 years before, they rebuilt the temple, and yet God's presence had never returned to the temple in the way that it had been before. Just like Elizabeth's womb was empty, the holy place in the temple was barren. And just as Zechariah was silenced, God had not spoken through prophets in 300 years. The last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, was the last time that God had spoken to his people Israel by a prophet because they had not listened to his word. And not only that, this time in Israel's history seemed hopeless because they had been under occupation by empire after empire ever since the exile. But here, the angel Gabriel returns to advance the story of Israel once again. So Zechariah and Elizabeth serve as these representatives for all of Israel as they recapitulate the story of Israel within their family. They need their shame to be undone. They need hope. And just as the angel told Zechariah that John's role would be to get the people prepared for the coming of the Messiah, it's almost as if the angel is saying to Zechariah, you also need to be prepared. You think you've got this whole religious thing down, but you have a few things to learn about trusting God. So you're not going to be able to talk until this happens. And this story, this part of the story, invites us to sit with Zechariah and Elizabeth in this time of waiting. And it asks us, what are we hoping for? As Zechariah and Elizabeth were hoping for this child, what have you asked God for that it seems will never happen? Maybe you've given up asking altogether. Maybe you stopped hoping a long time ago, thinking, mm, I think this one's pretty much done. There are... I say that gently, but also knowing that there are couples within our church experiencing the very trial that Zechariah and Elizabeth were going through of barrenness, of childlessness. But what, what is it for you that we have given up hope from? For myself, um, are we, we need another mic, sweet. Thank you. So for yourself... What is something that you maybe have even stopped praying for? The angel told Zechariah and Elizabeth, your prayer has been answered. How long have they been praying that prayer? 
without any answer whatsoever. For myself, over the past 10 years, I think every year around Christmas, I was keenly aware that my hope as a child of divorced parents was that they would get back together again. It was three days after Christmas, uh, about 11 years ago, that they told us that they were going to get divorced. Three days after Christmas. Thanks. That was really nice, Mom and Dad. But last year, my dad got remarried. And that hope is gone. And yet, what if God's silence, these gaps that seem to indicate God's absence and God's lack of response to our prayers is a sort of preparation for an unexpected type of redemption, something that we never would have imagined, one that doesn't operate according to our rules or our timeline. And in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, we see a reversal of fortune First, of Elizabeth's barrenness as she conceives and has a son despite Zechariah's disbelief that this would happen. And we see that John, months later, is born and Zechariah still can't speak. Verse 57, we read earlier. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. So the announcement of the name at the circumcision on the eighth day is actually a Jewish custom. So you don't tell the relatives or the family or, or anyone else what the, the baby is going to be named until their circumcision on the eighth day. That was true for both of my sons. And that just looked like not posting his name on social media, basically. All of our family knew. But on the eighth day became the occasion to announce to everyone gathered what the name of the child is. And the name bears significance especially in the Jewish community, in, in biblical times, the name was the identity. And people are convinced that Elizabeth is making a mistake by naming him John. I mean, may, you know, she's really old by this point. Maybe she's going senile. Maybe she's starting to lose it. So they ask Zechariah, and they motion to him, which indicates that he wasn't just mute. He was also deaf. And Here's the proof of the pudding of what these last few months of silence in Zechariah's life have yielded. What would have been produced by his silent reflection? Could it be bitterness? Could he say, yeah, name him whatever you want, I don't care, right? Or would he maybe just double down on being a religious person and say, no, he should be named Zechariah after me. Or would he respond in faith to what the angel said was going to happen? He writes down on a tablet, because he can't speak, Yohanan, John, which means the Lord is gracious. And because of Zechariah's faithful response to believe the angel's news, his tongue is loosened. 
Verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. So Zechariah's belief and John's entrance into the world breaks 300 years of prophetic silence and Zechariah explodes into this song of hope, which is called in Latin the benedictus, which just means the blessing. Verse 67 again. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The content of Zechariah's song leads us into a surprising twist. The lyrics direct our attention not to how God has brought the tremendous blessing of this new baby, not to how God has opened Zechariah's mouth to speak once again, but to how Zechariah and Elizabeth and John are actually part of this bigger story that God has been telling for thousands of years. For Zechariah, it was the story of Israel that had birthed this hope. This silent reflection over the past few months had churned the hope around in his heart. And what he was meditating on were these milestones of God's activity throughout Israel's history that we need to understand to understand why this is such good news. If that song that we just read sounded strange or unfamiliar and the terminology doesn't really sit with you, good. That's because you need to go back and understand what the Hebrew Bible says. Why as Christians do we need to understand the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament? It's because God wrote the first act of the story with all of its melodies and its themes and its plot points. And sitting down in the audience after the intermission, we're bound to miss a few things. So he has what? Visited his people. Verse 68. This is language of the Exodus, when God brought his people out from Egypt after a time of mourning and waiting, and God remembered his covenant and visited them. After his absence, it made way for his presence. He raised up a horn of salvation, verse 69. This refers to the horn that was used to hold oil that would anoint priests or kings or here. He's talking about the Messiah, which means anointed one. So this, this horn of oil that was used to anoint people in Israel for a specific service, Zechariah is looking forward to how this baby is going to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And he said that this Messiah is going to be coming from the house of his servant David. David refers to the king of Israel. 
who was supposed to have an unbroken line of descendants who would sit on the throne forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to King David that one of his children would always sit on the throne of Israel and would be the one to save Israel. Rather than being connected to Zechariah's own family, he's pointing ahead, just as his son John would do, to the Messiah's family. He says, in the prophets of old, linking to what God is saying through his mouth right now to what God has always been saying through the prophets for hundreds of years. And he says that it is remembering the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, verse 73, this covenant that God made with Abraham, this unconditional promise is the basis for why God will always save his people in spite of their disobedience. In the Exodus, when God brought the people of Israel out from Egypt, he said that he did it because he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that Zechariah looked forward that the coming of this messianic king would mean salvation from their enemies. Exodus, once again. See, the biggest problem that they faced in Zechariah's day was that the Roman Empire was occupying the land of Israel and they were under this oppressive regime. We don't have enemies in the same way. So we can't quite appreciate how good this news is because we are currently not under occupation by a totalitarian empire. However, we do have our fair share of things that have caused our cultural hopes to be dashed within these past 18 months, whether it's COVID or political tension or racism or discrimination, economic injustice, up until these last 18 months, there was a general sense in society that things were kind of getting better, that institutions could be trusted, that technology was actually helping and not hurting the world. And over the past 18 months, those illusions have mostly been stripped away and the fractures in our society have been exposed. And this bubble of false hope has been burst for many of us. And Zechariah was under no illusion that the solution to Israel's oppression could be solved by societal progress. He knew that hope could not come from the inside. It had to be God's intervention breaking in to history. So Zechariah's song gives us a window into what his inner life looked like over the past several months of silent reflection. What was the outcome of his reflection? Hope was built from remembrance. It wasn't from conjuring it up from inside. It wasn't even focused on what God had done in his own life that led him to that point, although those are good things, but on God's faithfulness through the entirety of Israel's story, looking back to look forward. Pastor Ryan pointed us to uh, a Greek uh, verb tense, uh, which is called the aorist tense that we don't have in the English language. Zechariah uses this as well, and it's like Something that is going to happen that has already happened in the past. God's action is complete even when we have yet to see it happen. Zechariah is anticipating God's redemption of his people and of Israel's story 
even though it, already has, it has not already happened yet because of what God has done in the past. So the question for us today is where does our hope come from? Do we conjure it up from inside? Do we muster it up? No, it must come from outside. Yes, the stories of our own experiences with God are really important to reflect on. They help us to remember how God has been faithful to our own lives. But what if we could see ourselves as part of a bigger story? Even within the life of this specific church family, we remembered a couple months ago on our sixth birthday as a church, we celebrated the ways that God has sustained us through difficult times. What about seeing ourselves as a part of what God has been doing through the church for hundreds of years? What about going back and seeing the stories of faithful missionaries, unsung heroes of the church who labored to bring the gospel to your group of people? My own family, the first person to follow Jesus in my family was my great-great-grandmother who lived on the shtetl of a Jewish community in Ukraine. And her husband met Jesus through the faithful witness of a Christian businessman that he met on a trip to Constantinople, modern-day Turkey. There's a bigger story going on. And our anxiety and our doubts often come from having our noses way too close to the details of our own circumstances instead of zooming out and looking back. Just like when the angel told Zechariah of Elizabeth's pregnancy and his response was, ah, that's not going to work. That's not how things work. God gave Zechariah this, this gift of silent reflection to remember what kind of God he serves. We serve a God who has been faithful to his promises time and time again, and whose presence will always fill up the emptiness. The story of Christmas invites us to consider that the hope that we need for, for pressing on in the midst of the silence and the emptiness of our own lives might come from lifting our gaze to see God's incredible love on display through his mercy to others in the past, that that might be the fuel for hope that we need to trust that God has bigger things in store for us in the future. It's not about pitting the, our, our individual hopes against what God wants for us. No, God cares about our hopes. God hears our prayers, but it's an invitation to see that our hopes, with all of the yearning and all of the desires that come with them, function as signposts that guide us into the greater story of God. One pastor puts it this way, Elizabeth's and Zechariah's personal prayer was answered, but ultimately it's not about her. It's part of a much larger story. It wasn't about her all along. It was the groaning of God's heart we see a little glimpse into an eternal perspective here. Our lives are much more significant than anything we can see in our lifetime. Our truest and most personal longings are ultimately symptoms of a longing for him, a longing for his kingdom to come in its fullness, a longing for the return of Christ. God cares about your prayers, about your ordinary human longings, and perhaps he's given them to you as a little hint of something bigger. So what is the something bigger? What is 
this story? What hope could possibly be big enough to absorb and reorder all of our hopes, all of the things that fuel our daydreams and our imaginations? What is it? Well, I think the Apostle Paul would tell us that it's adoption. Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for what? Adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they received what they were praying for. They received a baby that was born to them in their old age, but it doesn't always go that way. Our hopes are not always fulfilled in the ways that we think they will be. And the Apostle Paul seems to tell us that adoption, rather than being a second-rate solution to the problem, was actually part of God's grand plan from all eternity past that all of us get to experience what it's like being a part of God's family to have our hopes fulfilled by being adopted into God's family through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And not only that, but it's part of what God's doing in the entire world. The entire creation is groaning and waiting for this redemption to happen. And we get to participate in it through the hope of Jesus' death and resurrection. Our hopes are often too small. What Zechariah discovered is that his hope in the birth of a son was actually connected to the redemption of all creation. Their whole life had been about the preparation of the coming of this one who would lay down his life to save us. All of their emptiness and longings now being fulfilled, wrapping them up into a much bigger story that meant the rescue of the whole world, creation itself, and all of us as we now have the privilege of being adopted into God's family. So from Elizabeth's empty womb to the empty tomb of Jesus, we see the plan of God on display through these hopes. And even though Zechariah's hope had been refocused onto the bigger story of God, his song does not stay broad and general. His hope turns to what God is now doing through his son, John to the one who would invite people into this greater hope by becoming a bearer of hope. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
Zechariah moves from this hope being birthed within him to describing the job description of his son John in his role as a prophet, as one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And he was saying that his son would be a prophet, not in the sense of telling the future, but in declaring what's going on in the present, to show people what is going on in the world that must be corrected, and pointing people to the solution in Jesus. To prepare the way, and to point to Jesus. And John's ministry was explicitly fulfilling the promise that had been made hundreds of years ago by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, both John and Jesus quote the words of Isaiah 40 when describing what John was supposed to do. Isaiah 40 verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So these two roles that John the Baptist would have as he grows up in preparing the way for the Lord and pointing to Jesus, he was to clear the path of misconceptions, of false religion, of false hopes as he stood religious people in the face and called them a brood of vipers, as he baptized people in the Jordan River to get them ready, to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah so that their lives would be ready for this incredible change from darkness to light. And it said, I don't know if you caught it, but that, that he would go before the Lord. So in this passage, it identifies that this baby, this one that John the Baptist is preceding would be the Lord himself. And as Jesus comes onto the scene during John's ministry, as he's baptizing people in the Jordan River, and he sees Jesus coming, what does he do? He literally points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The forgiveness of sins is promised to us. Salvation from our enemies is promised to us, but not just salvation like Zechariah was hoping for from Roman oppression, but salvation from our own sin. Salvation from causing our hopes to place this agenda on God, and then when God doesn't come through for us, we rebel against him and say, you'll not rule over me anymore. That cosmic rebellion that all of us are guilty of would be forgiven by this coming king. And finally, he says, he gives light to those who sit in darkness, recalling this famous Christmas prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. And Zechariah's recognition is that he is one of the ones who is sitting in darkness, waiting for this light to break in. The, this time of silence in his own life has humbled him from this religious person into a humble person who is ready to acknowledge that he is in sin, 
that he is sitting in darkness in need of the illumination of the Messiah to come into his life. For the light to fill the darkness just as the presence of God fills the absence. In the person of Jesus, God comes to live with his people for the first time since the people of Israel were exiled from their homeland. While the temple remains empty, the person of Jesus comes and fills Israel with the presence of God. And the void of hopelessness is now overflowing with hope. So John's role in preparing and pointing to Jesus set the stage for what we're going to see in the next couple weeks in Jesus' birth and in his coming. But Jesus, in his ministry, says something incredibly fascinating about John the Baptist. John, who is ultimately martyred and beheaded for fulfilling this role of prophet, Jesus says of him later in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. He's the greatest prophet who's ever lived. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that of all of Israel's prophets, John is the greatest of them all. Why? Because he gets to point to the Messiah, the one that all of the other prophets had been waiting for, and say, here he is. And yet, for those of us who have placed our hope in Jesus, even those of us who are least in the kingdom, we are greater than John because we get to point back at what Jesus has done for us and say, look at Jesus. Look at what he did for you. Look at what he did for me. The role that uniquely belonged to John in pointing to Jesus and preparing the way for his coming now belongs to everyone who's been saved by him in preparing the way for his return. So how do we fulfill this role? For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and in his first coming and are awaiting his second coming, how do we prepare the way? How do we point to Jesus just as John did? There are a few things. First, we need to yield to God's work of preparation in our lives. To consider how he wants to use our story as part of a bigger story. Now, I say this gently to those especially who are experiencing tremendous hardship and heartache right now, whose hopes have not been fulfilled, who are in this process of waiting and possibly grieving. Authentic faith in the midst of suffering and difficulty is the best medicine for hypocrisy and dead religion. To you, I would say, do not stop leaning into community, into scripture, into prayer, into the rhythms of grace that God has provided for you in the face of your trials, in the face of your waiting and in your unfulfilled hope. Be real and wrestle and stay engaged in the midst of doubt and uncertainty. And your story will become like smelling salts to wake up those around you with dead faith. And will be like the sweetest smell to those who don't know Jesus. Because they see how you are yearning to be a part of a bigger story. And they will want to be a part of that as well. What if God has a plan for the emptiness and the silence of our own stories? Are we able to trust that God's ways are higher than ours? 
that the reasons for our own experience of silence and emptiness might actually be God preparing the way for how he's going to use us to become messengers of hope for others. The preparation work that God does in our lives is always intended to lead us to prepare the way for others. This means that every sorrow, every heartache has meaning. These become the ways that we can feel the emptiness of Elizabeth's womb, sit in complete silence with Zechariah so that new life and vibrant songs of hope can come out, but only after enduring this season of waiting and anticipation. There's a well-known author, uh, Christian author named Lee Strobel, who wrote this book, uh, The Case for Christ, and it's been made into a movie. He, uh, he used to be an atheist journalist in Chicago, and he once was doing a story on some of the poorest people of his city. And he interviewed a family around Christmas that had absolutely nothing. The two little girls of this family would walk to school in the cold Chicago winters sharing a sweater as they walked. Their empty apartment didn't have any heat. And after he published this article on them, they received a flurry of gifts and money from people who had read this article about them. And as they got ready to celebrate Christmas with all of these gifts filling their house, and Lee went to visit them, they began to start giving away some of their gifts because they told him the true gift they had already received in Jesus. And Lee Strobel writes about this experience. He says, here was a family that had nothing but faith and yet seemed happy while I had everything I needed but lacked faith. And inside, I felt as empty and barren as their apartment. They had peace despite poverty while I had anxiety despite plenty. They knew the joy of generosity while I only knew the loneliness of ambition. They looked heavenward for hope while I only looked out for myself. They experienced the wonder of the spiritual. I was shackled to the shallowness of the material. And something made me long for what they had, or more accurately, for the one they knew. Don't you see that the emptiness of this family's poverty prepared the way for Lee's salvation. We need to yield to God's work of preparation in our lives so that we can prepare the way for others. Secondly, we need to look backwards so that we can look forwards. We need to, this Christmas, be rejuvenated by this 2,000-year-old hope again to have our doubts silenced to have our mouths shut by God until we are ready to open our mouths for the purpose of declaring to others the hope of the gospel. This same anticipation, the same emptiness and silence and brokenness that we experience becomes the opportunity to look backward at what God has done in the past in his faithfulness to everyone throughout history who has trusted in him and that in our lives, he can become our source of hope so that we can become messengers of hope. And finally, let God open your mouth. One author says, the evidence of salvation that God's grace has taken effect in one's life is to be found in one's participation in bringing salvation to others. 
There are those of us whose doubts are hindering us from becoming bearers of hope because our faces are too close to our own worry and anxiety. And we need to zoom out and discover that God might be calling us to become bearers of hope, to sing this song of blessing over others. Maybe the way that God wants to restore your hope is actually by becoming a conduit of hope for others. What if the reason we're consumed by hopelessness and doubt is because we aren't living into our role as messengers to declare the hope that we do have to those who need it the most? How is God calling us in this season to become bearers of hope? Just as John the Baptist's ministry was focused on preparing people to meet Jesus, we are called to do the same. Let's pray.